My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Um, I am excited to continue in our Advent series in preparation for Christmas this morning. You may have noticed, if you have been with us for a while, that there was something missing from the welcome. Anybody know what it was? The Bible Declaration. So, this is what I want. She didn't forget that. This is actually, we have some ground to cover this morning. And so the reason we do the Bible Declaration is simply to say, hey, we believe this is the Word of God. And it's a way of preparing our hearts for hearing and reading the Word of God. And so we're just saying, hey, we're prepared for it. It's not a biblical creed. It's not an ecumenical thing that we're joining with anyone else in other than to say, hey, we believe this. We're prepared for His Word. Amen? So, do you believe this is His Word? Me too. So, um, <laughs> there we go. So we're prepared for it. So we're going to continue in our Advent series this morning. And so we have kicked off the Advent series uh, a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, I should say. And we started with the candle of hope. And then we moved on to the candle of peace last week. And so this morning, we are going to celebrate joy. And so this is the candle. We are lighting the candle of joy this morning, and so Advent is simply a word that means appearing or coming. And so we're lighting the Advent candle of joy as we prepare our hearts for Christmas and the celebration of the first Advent or the first appearing of Christ. And so, um, again, I'm really thankful to uh, have the opportunity to do this. I think sometimes um, Christmas can sneak up on us. I don't know if you know this, but it's only 14 days away. 14 days. Some of you are like, I got to go shopping, um, <laughs> which we're actually going to talk about that this morning. So uh, I'm, I am excited to dive in um, and, and just celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ. And so in the midst of a dark world that's constantly pulling us away from the true reason for the season and the true meaning of Christmas, right, the goal of Advent is to hone in on what Christmas is all about, like to hone in on Jesus and to prepare us heart, mind, soul, and strength for who he is and what he's done and who he is for us. And so this morning we're going to take a cue from the wise men that we just read about in Matthew 2 and rejoice with exceedingly great joy. I love that phrase. Rejoice. Here's what he says. He says, and they saw the star, and they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. It's almost like Matthew's like tripping over himself to try and put it into language how elated they are to see this star. We're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about the, the, the joy of the wise men. See, that star represented the greatest gift in all eternity and the ultimate Christmas morning. I'm going to give you the why behind the what for all that we're celebrating and all that we're doing because it meant that the advent or the coming of the true king of kings and the son of God himself was here. That's why they're so stoked. And, and these phrases are an understatement. These, these wise men had been waiting and they'd been seeking and they'd been longing. They'd even been pining like a deep ache. They'd been looking towards this coming vigilantly expectantly, faithfully, even generations of these magi or wise men have been looking forward to this time, this moment, this season, you might say. 
And then this appearing of this star in the night happens. And this, this light in the dark comes. And it's the result of God's glory breaking into the dark. That's the imagery that we're given here. And that's what I want you to see this morning. And so then again, what happens when they see this, I'm going to call it a glory star? What happens? Verse 10, Matthew 10. I'm sorry, Matthew 2, verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So their first response to the advent of his glory is joy. But that's just the beginning. Look what, what, what that joy spills over into in verse 11. So Matthew 2, verse 11, look at this. That joy then it spills over into, verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. So the next thing they do is they come in worship and adoration. Like they, they, they fully exult in the God who became flesh. The God who came as a baby. The all-powerful creator king incarnate as an infant. And they bow down. Actually, they, they fall down. I mean, this is not an overstatement. They would have been completely overwhelmed. And they worship him. They don't just honor him as a significant figure in history. They worshiped him as God. They worshiped him as the God who rules over history. This baby. But how did they know? Like, how, like even Mary and Joseph are still trying to figure this whole thing out. So how did these wise men know to worship this baby or even to show up? It's a good question. Hold that thought. Because it's not over. Look what happens next. So his glory ignites their joy, and their joy spills over into worship, and their joyful worship then overflows in joyful generosity. That's what we see. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh. And out of the abundance of their joy, they gave. So in response to the greatest gift of all, these wise men gave that which they treasured to the one that they treasured more. And so as a roadmap for the rest of our time this morning, we're going to answer four questions, okay? Who are these wise men? Why were they so overjoyed? Why did they open their treasures and give? And what does this all have to do with us this Christmas? So here's what I want you to get. If you get nothing else this morning, this is what I want you to get. Christmas is about joyful giving in response to the greatest gift of all, which is Jesus Christ. Christmas is about joyful giving in response to the greatest gift of all, which is Jesus Christ. Okay, so, who were these wise men? It's a good question. Some call them, again, wise men. Some call them kings. You've heard that, we three kings, right? It's a song. But the, the, the term that Matthew originally uses here to describe them is magi. Magi from the east. And so it would have likely been a massive caravan of magi, not just three. And so, 
Traditionally, our nativity scenes only have three, right? Like if you go, you see these nativity scenes and there's actually, you, you see these three wise men or these three kind of kingly figures and, and they're, they're right there along with the shepherds and in the manger and all that stuff, right? Well, the truth is they, these guys would have probably shown up about two years after Jesus was born. <laughs> and so like I love it when people set up their nativity scenes. My wife won't let me do this. I tell you this every year. But I, I kind of want to put the, like, the nativity scene on this side of the room and then put the kings or the, the, the wise men over here. Like, we're on the way. You know what I mean? I love, I love that. But uh, she won't let me do it. She's just like, put it together. So, um, <laughs> and, I, I, and I get it. Like, but as I'll show you in a bit, I also want you to see that the scriptures allude to this being a massive caravan. Not just three, but a, probably a ton of people. And so this is also uh, why they would have caught King Herod's attention when they roll into Jerusalem. They would have been hard to miss. And so now the Magi, again, is a word to describe an ancient school of learners. They were the wisest and the most learned of all the nations and the religions of the known world at the time. They would have studied creation, they would have studied history, and they studied the stars. They were seekers of truth and they were renowned for their wisdom. And so we've also seen them before in the Bible. When Israel and the Old Testament are taken captive, captive into Babylonian captivity 700 years before Christ is born, Isaiah prophesies, again, that this would happen. We're actually told in the Old Testament book of Daniel about this school of magi. In fact, it was this school that the teenage Daniel, which the book of Daniel focuses on, and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this is the school that they were taken into. So when Babylon conquered Israel in the Old Testament and they took them captive, they took these teenagers, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and probably many more, into captivity. And so this school was how Babylon was actually attempting to brainwash these godly teenagers. But this story about the Magi here in Matthew 2 is actually a testament to the fact that the Magi didn't change Daniel and his godly friends. Daniel and his friends dropped these gospel seeds into the Magi's hearts. And in fact, Nebuchadnezzar actually declares that Daniel's God, so the king of Babylon, ends up declaring that Daniel's God is the most high God, and he makes Daniel chief over the Magi, 700 years before these guys show up. And so now Daniel didn't just throw the, like, he, he just didn't just throw out God's name. Like, he didn't just know about God. This is a man of prayer. He knew him intimately, and he loved his word. We see that when you look at the book of Daniel. And so he would have pointed them to the Old Testament scriptures and prophecies like Isaiah chapter 60, which would have been written and prophesied even before Daniel's time in captivity. In fact, look with me. I actually want to read through uh, some of this prophecy here that was given, again, 700 years before Christ was born and these magi show up in Bethlehem. So look with me at Isaiah 60. Verse 1 through 9. Now again, this is Isaiah speaking to an exiled Israel. He's already prophesied that they're going to go into exile. 
They're going to get captured from their land and taken to a land that's not their own. Isaiah talks about this earlier in the chapters. And here, that, he's so, God's just downloading stuff to him so much that now he is prophetically speaking to an exiled and captive Israel in Babylon. Okay? And so, in other words, he was speaking to Daniel and his friends. And so Daniel would have cherished these passages. And this is what he says as he prophesies something that goes way even beyond their circumstance. Isaiah 60, chapter chapter 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Sounds a lot like that star. Verse 2. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. Sounds like a glory star to me. Verse 3. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. This is why many refer to these magi as, or or these wise men also, as kings. Verse 4, lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Again, it's highly unlikely that this was just three wise men and a few camels. Like this was a massive caravan representing the nations and its abundance. Verse 5, then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. So remember, the sea in Scripture is often associated with wickedness, chaos, and confusion. It, It represented often the state of the fallen world that's in rebellion to God. Which is why in Revelation, the sea around the throne of God isn't chaotic, it's calm and slick like glass. A little something like that, but without even a ripple, right? And so here it's saying that the abundance of the wicked and even the lost nations far from God will be turned towards God and his people. It's quite a prophecy. Verse 6 keeps going. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. So these are nations who were once in rebellion. They will come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Like another way to say that might be rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. Verse 7, all the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar. In other words, God will receive it. Before he didn't receive it. Now he's saying, I receive this. And I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these? This is almost like Isaiah in this vision of this prophecy. He's like impressed with it. He's like, who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? Like a dove that's trapped in a room, like they're looking for that open window, right? Verse 9, 
for the coastlands shall hope for me. This is powerful because the coastlands throughout the Old Testament are associated with the rebellious nations. Like the Philistines. The Philistines in the Old Testament, the ones that David fought, they were on the coastlands of Israel. Or, or, and then it says, the ships of Tarshish first. Tarshish, guys, I know this is extra context, but I love it and I want you to too. So Tarshish was the place that Jonah ran off to in rebellion from God in the book of Jonah, where God calls him to go to Nineveh and he's like, nope, I'm going this way, Tarshish. And he hops on a ship and just wanders around the ocean, wandering around in rebellion to God. And so this is actually, that statement alone is actually a reference to God's disobedient children who are wandering aimlessly in rebellion to their God-given purpose, those prodigal sons and daughters. But this is a promise, continue on with the verse, to bring your children from afar, like God did with Jonah where he swallowed him up by a whale or a great fish, even in the midst of his desperate rebellion, and he spits him out like a resurrection onto the shore of God's good purpose. It's a powerful promise here. And again, the wayward children will be brought back with their silver and gold with them. For the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel. Because he has made you beautiful. Like what was once wicked and ugly and rebellious and detestable to God, he himself has now made beautiful. How does he make that which is wretched beautiful? He does it through the gospel of grace. That's what Christmas is all about. This is the gospel that God became a man, even a baby. And that baby lived the life. He grew up, <laughs> right? It's not just like Talladega Night status where he's a baby forever and we're picturing him in his like, you know, golden fleece diapers, right? Can't even speak a word, but still omnipotent. I love that phrase. It's funny. No, if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. <laughs> but this, he becomes a man, and he lives the life that we couldn't live, and he died the death we deserve to die because of sin. And he took that penalty upon himself, but he then conquers death in the grave, and he paves the way to eternal life with God the Father. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit intimacy. And it's an eternal life and an eternal relationship that doesn't just start one day when we die, but it starts the moment we place our faith and our hope in what he did for us at the cross, through the cross, and resurrection. And so this is what he does, and he fills us with his spirit, and he draws us to himself, and he recreates us from the inside out, giving us new hearts and beautifying us and gathering us, even the nations, not just Israel, the nations. And he's gathering us from the ends of the earth as his beloved children, his beloved family filled with grace and purpose and becoming the light of the world, beholding his glory. What a promise. 
That's a promise. Isaiah 60, that's the promise. And that's the promise that's being fulfilled in Matthew 2, partially. Because it's not totally fulfilled. Like, I want you to see this. It's so powerful. But Matthew 2, with the wise men, I want you to see that, that, that it's only partially there because you, we, me, we are the lost and found in this passage. We are the nations who have come from afar, from the darkness to his glorious light. You're only seeing a partial fulfillment of this in Matthew 2. It's like a prefiguring of the ultimate fulfillment that we're going to see. Like some of you may be reading this and you're like, man, I can't wait for the day when the nations fly like a cloud to the Lord and that time when the lost children come back to him like a dove to an open window. Well, guess what? It's happening. And it's been happening for almost 2,000 years. And it got kicked off when Jesus came. And I want you to see this. That this caravan of magi were like a prefiguring of what's been happening for almost 2,000 years since. And it's taking place now, even in Virginia Beach and all over the world. And so we, we get an even greater glimpse of its ultimate fulfillment, which will come in Revelation 21, verse 22 through 24, which talks about what will happen and what it will look like when Jesus comes at his second advent, second coming, second appearing, which is our ultimate hope. Amen? And this describes this in Revelation 21. It says this, verse 22. It says, and I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. We're just talking about Jesus. And so the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. P.S. So many people have tried to identify this, this, this star of Bethlehem as like, what is it? Like astrologists, astronomers, they've all come up with all kinds of theories. And honestly, it makes for some pretty interesting documentaries, right? Like if you've got Amazon Prime, you're probably going to be diving into some of this stuff or, or Christmas, you know. But um, none of it really makes full sense, right? Like, like it doesn't really do it justice, and here's why. It's not just a star, like, they're like, how did the star move around and then stop right here? Because it's not just a star. Like, it's the inbreaking of the glory of God. That's what it is. For by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory even into eternity. Because that little star, that little inbreaking becomes the sun in Revelation 21. You see, the star of Bethlehem it's just a taste of God's glory that will be unleashed at the second advent. And his glory will be brighter and more apparent even than the sun. So it's no wonder that this caravan of magi rejoiced with so much exceedingly great joy when they see this star. Because they were beholding the glory of God that's drawing them to the eternal king. So why were they overjoyed? That's why! Why am I overjoyed? That's why. They were beholding his ever-increasing glory that had come, that had broken through. So what does this joy lead them then to do? Matthew 2.11 says, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. <laughs> 
Now, these wise men knew this was no ordinary baby. They fell down and they worshipped him as God himself. Just as Isaiah 7, verse 14 prophesied, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Sounds like they took that verse seriously. Then Isaiah 9, verse 6, we talked about this last week. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Again, sounds like these guys took that seriously. He's the king of glory. He's the creator of heaven and earth. This is why they were so overjoyed. This is why they joyfully worshipped him. Joy to the Lord, joy to the world, rather, and the Lord, but joy to the world. We sang about this, right? Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. That which is what we're talking about this morning. Making room for the king. And heaven and nature sing. And then that joyful worship just naturally overflows in joyful generosity. We're actually witnessing here the plundering of hell. We're witnessing the abundance of the sea, gold, frankincense, silver, the first and best offered in joyful worship and joyful generosity. All for the name of the Lord and the Holy One of Israel so he can make you beautiful. No, that's not what it says. They're not giving so he will make them beautiful. They're not buying their salvation. What are they doing? They're giving because, say because. Because he has made you beautiful. Christmas is about joyful giving in response to the greatest gift of all, Jesus Christ. But what if the wise men were like, you know what? We got a pretty long journey ahead. Maybe keep the gold and just give them the frankincense and myrrh. Probably going to need it. Long journey. What if, what if they did that? Right? Like, like what if, you know, they're like, you know what? If there's some leftovers, we'll ship it to them when we get back home. But when you've truly seen his glory, the natural response isn't shipping him the leftovers. It's joyful and even sacrificial generosity. That's what we're seeing here. It's why the Bible's filled with the command to bring the first and best of our harvest or produce or income. It's all over the scriptures. Old Testament, New Testament, it's all over it. Proverbs 3.9, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce, especially, especially, in light of the gift that he's given us in Christ. It's not a demand. It's an opportunity because now, if you're in Christ, man, it's all his anyway. So have you ever been given a gift, though? Have you ever been given a gift, but you didn't have anything to give in return? Ever been in a situation like that? Like, you can get pretty awkward. Right? Like, especially if it's a nice gift and they're expecting something else from you. Like, somebody's like... They give you something, and they're like, hey. When I was a, um, I'll give you an example of this. When I was a, a teenager, I started dating this girl. 
uh, just before Christmas, and I think I was like a freshman in high school, kind of oblivious to life in general. I didn't know Jesus. I didn't know anything. I just kind of was like, you know, I'm like, pretty girl, this is what teenagers do. I'm going to start dating this girl. That's a bad idea, by the way. Don't recommend that at all. That's a horrible reason to get into any kind of relationship. Um, <laughs> but anyway, m- my sister, who was in college at the time, she comes home and she asks me, you know, kind of like older siblings do. She's like, oh, so what'd you get your girlfriend for Christmas? And I'm like, that's a thing? <laughs> you know? I'm like, oh, man, this, this, is, this is more than I thought it was going to be, you know? And so she, after, you know, berating and shaming me sufficiently into the dirt, she drives me to the mall, and my sister basically makes me spend all the money that I had on buying her a, a, a gift, which I didn't have, like, hardly any money at all. So, um, anyway, I was able to scrounge up enough money to buy this nice bracelet, and I got it gift-wrapped, I mean, the full thing, so I'm feeling pretty good about things, you know, so I go to her house, and I'm like, you know, I got you a present, you know, and she's like, you didn't, and I'm like, I did, here you go, Merry Christmas, right, so she's kind of stunned, and and we, we go inside, she opens it up, and she, I could tell she liked it, because, you know, she was standing there wide-eyed at this gift that I'd given her. So I'm thinking, man, this is a big win, right? Like, I'm, I'm like, this is great. I'm glad my sister told me to do this, you know. And she's like, I got you a present too. You know, I'm like, Phew. She says, I'll be right back. And she's gone for about 10 minutes, and all I can think is, man, you know, man, my sister was right. This would have been really bad if I didn't have a gift because she got me something. So I'm like, I'm in front of this. So then she comes back. She hands me this unwrapped box, and she says, sorry, I haven't wrapped it yet. I'm like, okay, I open the box, I don't care. I open the box and I see this nice gray sweater. It's like a dark gray, and I remember thinking, man, this is like a, a different kind of color. It's like this dark gray, it's like a designer color. It must be really nice. So then I get home later and I break out my new sweater and I try it on. It doesn't really fit very well. But I'm kind of like, as I'm putting it on, I'm like, this, this sweater looks really familiar. And I realized it was her brother's sweater. Like it wasn't a new dark gray sweater. It was an old faded black sweater. <laughs> right? Like she, she just, she hadn't thought about it at all. She just goes into her brother's closet and grabs some old sweater he wouldn't miss, stuck it in a box and gave it to me as a gift, like Merry Christmas. I'm dumb enough for it. Actually, it worked, you know. And so she hadn't thought about it at all. Of course, I wouldn't have either if not for my sister, but that's not the point, right? So the point was, I gave a great gift, and she didn't. <laughs> she just gave me the leftovers nobody would miss to make herself feel better. So I called her and dumped her, and then I called my sister, and I was like, you owe me a brand-new black sweater. <laughs> no, nah, I didn't do that. I did dump her, though. <laughs> the point is, though, <laughs> It's not the point. Point is, this is often how people treat God. Right? That sobered up real quick. That's how, this is how we often tend to treat God. Like, often people tend to spend their money on what they care about most, and then if there's anything left over at the end, they'll give it to what God cares about most. Like, you know, the leftovers they think they won't really miss. But God isn't asking for our leftovers. He's asking for our first and best because it's a reflection of where our hearts are. It's all about our hearts. 
Like God doesn't need our money. He's God. But he does desire our hearts. And so this is the heart behind the principle of something called tithing. You might have heard of it before. It's called tithing to your local church. That means, tithe means 10%. And it's not primarily about a fundraising effort for our churches. That's not the purpose behind this. And in a world that idolizes money, this gets heavy because we live in a nation and in a society that absolutely treats money as their God. Just because it's written on your money, in God we trust, that, that's just more accountability to the fact that we do treat money as God, right? And so this is part of what God has come to deliver us from in so many ways because he's about our heart. It's about our heart. It's, it, it's, it's why part of the greatest joy of Christmas is the joy of giving in response to the greatest gift of all, which is Jesus Christ. And so it's not just some commercial obligation when we give gifts to one another. It's about joyfully giving in response to his joyful gift. And as we, who were rescued from darkness into light, give, we're actually participating in the prophecies we just read about. Because that which was once used for the vain, pointless purposes of the wicked have now been reclaimed and repurposed through faith for the kingdom of God. How beautiful is that? And again, it's not just the first and best 10%. That first and best is like the cornerstone that aligns the rest of our life and reorients how we spend our time and our talent and our treasure in every facet of our life. Because if you're in Christ, it's not like the first 10% belongs to God and then the rest of the 90% belongs to you. That's how some of this stuff where people like guilt people in, it's like if you don't give your first 10%, then the rest of your 90% is cursed. Like, What? That's not the heart of God. That's not how this goes. He's not a slot machine. Like he's given us all that we have, 100% of what we have. And so we then giving our lives belong to him, heart, mind, soul, and strength. Again, it's not about the amount or the value of the gift. That's not about, it's not even what the whole percentage thing is about. It's about what it represents. This is why the currency of the kingdom is faith. Because God is after our hearts. The wise men brought their first and their best to the Lord, and, and truly wise men have been doing it ever since. Like the reality is that gold was no more than a simple copper coin compared to the value of the gift that they were given in the Son of God, right? They're definitely not trying to purchase him. That's not what this is about. It was their heart that pleased the Lord. It was their joy. Like Luke 21, verse 1 through 4, it says this. Verse 1, Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty and all that she had to live on. And so see, this woman who, who knows where her provision comes from, comes and gives out of an abundance of joy. She's not trying to buy it. She's like, I got nothing but Jesus, which means she has everything. 
That's a woman who knows that 100% of her life is reliant upon and secure in the Lord. That's a great place to be, man. That is a joyful, like that's the heart that I desire to cultivate and grow in. And there's a security and a joy that that kind of generosity that transcends our earthly circumstances, it cultivates. That joy goes beyond what we have going on in this world. Pastor J.D., Pastor uh, J.D. Greer, he actually taught me a lot about biblical and joyful generosity. Especially as a younger, stingy American. He tells the story of how Jesus has given a little boy's lunch of five loaves and bread and two fish. Remember that one? Where Jesus multiplies it and feeds the 5,000. J.D. calls this lunch that the boy gives, uh, he called it his Hebrew happy meal. And Jesus turns it into enough food to feed the 5,000 people in the area, right? But what Jesus, like, would he have been able to do that if he didn't have five loaves and two fish? Like, what if, what if all the boy had was, like, one fish and two loaves of bread? Like, would it have mattered? It was like, all right, we can only do 2,500 now. You know? Like, Jesus could have done the same miracle, he could have done the same miracle with a breadcrumb and fish fin because the amount we give matters far less than the spirit with which we give it. That's the principle at work when we talk about generosity in the church. In the same way Jesus took what the boy had and then he increased it, God multiplies our giving when we offer it in surrender and faith. That's what we mean when we say faith is the currency of the kingdom. Like it has nothing to do with how much money we bring, but that we are willing to place it all in the hands of Jesus. Like when, when Paul starts his conversation in 2 Corinthians 9 about generosity, he doesn't start it with a need that God has, but with the grace that God wants to give his people. It's an encouragement to grow in the grace of giving, is what he says. And so God is not short on money. But the generosity of his people is the means by which he pursues his mission on earth and releases his abundance. It's how God multiplies grace in our lives, this grace of giving. And so in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 10 through 11, Paul says this. He says, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous, in every way. Say every way. So what does in every way mean? Like, does he mean that God's going to increase you financially? Is that what he's talking about here? Yeah. You guys are like, whoa, prosperity gospel. No, it's just the Bible, okay? I hate the prosperity gospel. It's a lie. It's a trick. Because it, it, it makes you only thinking about money, not him. But in reacting to that in this world, we also tend to throw out the generosity principles that God has laced throughout his scriptures. Because, but watch this, it's, because money, finances, it's included in the word every. It is. It's included in that. It's a promise repeated throughout Scripture. Proverbs 9, or Proverbs 3, we just read it. 9 through 10, it says this. 
Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. But Paul doesn't mean this is just an investment program. Like every way means every way. For example, what you plant often looks a lot different than what you harvest. Like have you ever seen a peach seed? Have you seen those things? They look like a shriveled up rat brain. But you plant that in a seed, that you plant that seed in the ground, and it becomes this beautiful tree full of this beautiful fruit. So, what kind of fruit gets cultivated through joyful giving? First, giving produces great or greater contentment. Contentment. Well, I can't talk. Giving produces greater contentment. There's a saying that the secret to life is not having all you want, but wanting all you have. You ever heard that before? Now you have. 1 Timothy 6.6 6 says, godliness with contentment is great gain. So the greatest gain, then, is this contentment in Christ. Number two, so number one, giving produces greater contentment. Number two, giving increases your love for the kingdom of God. Like in Matthew 6, verse 21, Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, a lot of people think that this tends, tend to think that this just means that where you give is a reflection of your heart, right? And that's true, but it also works the other way around. Because when you're invested in the kingdom with your treasure, your heart gets invested also. Does that make sense? Verse 3. I'm sorry, not verse 3. Oh, point 3. Giving clarifies your purpose. At the church where I was a part of before uh, we came to Virginia Beach, there was a man in his 50s who said he spent the first part of his life trying to gather and save. And then he, he, he was a Christian, and he always thought he was doing it for his kids. But as he began to reflect on his legacy and the legacy that he would actually leave, he realized that that legacy felt empty. Only as he began to give sacrificially did he begin to discover a real sense of purpose and the true gospel legacy that he would leave through his life. Number four, giving produces a more loving and joyful heart. Stinginess shrinks your heart. It breeds isolation. Giving opens us up and opens our hearts to, a, to being a much more joyful heart, right? So most of us think generosity is something that God wants from us. But according to Paul, it's something that God wants for us. Generosity isn't just something, it's not something God wants from you. It's something he wants for you. That's why it's not just fundraising. This is discipleship. So giving helps us become more like that little boy who gave his lunch to Jesus. And after all, like when, when it was said and done, when it was, everything was said and done, at the end of that day after he had multiplied to the 5,000, there were 12 baskets left over in that story. Right? So when we're worried about what God's calling us to give up, we need to think instead about what God wants us to gain. And it may not be more money. It may be more joy, more eternal perspective. It may simply be freedom from the bondage that money has on your heart. Number five, this is the last one. Giving liberates you from the grip of the God of money. You see, joyful giving doesn't necessarily mean it's easy. 
Like when you worship money, then giving it to things that God loves can be difficult. Matthew 6, verse 24, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so there's two types of people that money tends to grip, okay? The spenders and the savers, right? The spenders tend to look for satisfaction in the material things that money can buy. This is what's after when, when you're spending, right? So like, or the status that it can bring you. And so the savers, though, they tend to look for security in their bank accounts or investment portfolios, right? And so to the spenders looking for that satisfaction and what they can buy with money, Jesus says, look at the flowers. This is not even Solomon and all his riches had better clothes than these flowers. Like how much more will your God abundantly satisfy you? And then to the savers that tend to look to security in money, Jesus says, look at the birds. They've got no investment portfolios. They've got no 401ks. And yet, your heavenly Father provides for them. Are you not of more value than they? No, he's not saying you shouldn't spend. And he's not saying you shouldn't save here. Like, that's not what it means. Both are actually wise to do. These are things that you should do, right? But joyful generosity is the declaration that our ultimate satisfaction and security is in Christ alone. And so we, when we trust in the Lord and not in our bank accounts, it's like an exercise in deliverance from the grip of the love of money. And remember, 1 Timothy 6.10, it doesn't say money is the root of all kinds of evils. It says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils or evils. Money isn't bad. And hear me, this is important. In fact, we're, we're called to create and cultivate. Money is an important tool in that godly calling. So, so don't let this sermon, please, do not let this sermon feed laziness in your life and make it sound like you're holy because you don't care about money. That would be the drunk man that climbs up on the horse and falls off on the other side. Right? To quote Martin Luther. That's, an, that's a reaction. That's not what we're saying. The point here is to break its grip on our hearts as we steward the resources he's given us well for his kingdom and his glory, not our own. Okay, and so I want to take a second here as we kind of laid the groundwork for the power and the joy of giving. I want to take a second and celebrate what God has done in and through the joyful, sacrificial generosity of our church this year. Because, look, it is an honor and a joy to participate with you in these things. And I want to celebrate. I know this stuff can be heavy. Because we all have an opportunity, every single one of us have an opportunity to grow in the grace of giving. And so there's a lot of, there can be a lot of conviction around these things. But I also want to celebrate what God has done and is doing in and through us, okay? And so we believe in the power of giving. We believe in the power of giving our first and best, not just as individuals, but we also believe for this as a church. We believe in this as a church, not because we have to, but because we're beholding his glory, which ignites joyful worship, which overflows in joyful generosity. 
Okay, And so even corporately as a church, we have set aside the first and best of our income as a church, and we give it to other churches and organizations that we believe God loves, that matters to his heart. So not simply out of the abundance of our bank account, but out of the abundance of our hearts, because we trust him, right? And so we've done this from the start, even when money was really tight and often absent, Right? Right when we're in some pretty rough days, we did this. We gave our first and best. And we've done at least 10%. We've done this. And in those seasons where it was really tight, it was like a punch in the teeth to the grip of money as a church. And I look back and I'm like, man, God, thank you. For those moments when it was tight and was like, oh, I don't know if I want to do this, God. And God's like, yes. And he's been faithful because he's so good. And so here, even, again, 100% of what we do here goes towards building the kingdom and making disciples who make disciples. 100% of it. And I truly believe, listen to me, there's no better way to steward your money than to give to your local church because it's God's primary plan for accomplishing his mission upon the earth. I truly believe that. But even as a church, again, we believe in joyfully giving sacrificially, um, and, and so I want to uh, use the rest of our time to rejoice in some of the stuff that God's done this year, So even just so far. So this year, we've been blessed to give uh, over $20,000 this year to healthy church planting, both nationally and internationally, through the Summit Collaborative and Acts 29 Network. Okay? And... On top of that, many of you may remember earlier this year when we um, uh, began, or when the war began in Ukraine, right? And we opened up our treasures and we gave our first and our best early in 2022 to an organization called the Josiah Venture. And so they're, they're a gospel-centered network of church planters who were already on the ground in Ukraine when everything kind of went crazy, and they were at a grassroots level, and we had a connection to them, and so they were able to shine the light of the gospel upon a war-torn area and refugees, and so by God's grace, our little church was able to give another 21500 to this venture. In fact, I got a friend who can thank you and give you more details better than I can. So we've got a little thank you video and uh, some updates for you on how that's being used. So turn your attention to the screens. Let's turn this up. All right. I love that. What they're trying to articulate there with Ruzlan's story is, a, is something that I'm hearing from a lot of different areas. And that's that what's going on in Ukraine right now is that there's countless people like Ruslan who have lived in that chaos of a war-torn area for so long and that what's happening right now is that many of them are coming to Christ and they're leaving some of the traditions of their, their, their families that are kind of stuck in dry religion or have left that and they're running to the living king and the gospel of Jesus Christ and so they are off in the heartbeat like they're catalyzing them. They're not just uh, rescuing them, but they are rescuing them and bringing them into the rescue mission. And so I, I'm loving hearing about these things. And so this is something just I wanted you to see. And, and I praise God for the honor of being a part of that. And I, and I want to encourage you to continue to pray for them. And so I also, we're not done yet. So 
We're also partnered with a local organization uh, that's in our city um, that serves the homeless in our city. They're called the Pen Ministry, People in Need. And so we've partnered with them, uh, and, and they are they're pointing people to caring for uh, the, the poor and needy and homeless in our area, uh, and they're doing so with the love of Jesus. And so uh, we've given over $2,500 to them this year as well. And so, yeah. And again, we're not done yet. So um, this week, I want to open another opportunity to partner with and bless our local crisis pregnancy center, also known as the CPC, okay? And so it's a nonprofit, Christ-centered organization with a calling to reach out to women and families that are involved in crisis-related pregnancies by offering real help for the present hope for the future, and healing from the past. This is a quote from them, that they exist. CPC exists to save lives, spare hearts, and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this one's one's close to me. So, hold on. All this, man, I got this far. (laughs) So they receive zero government funding because what they're doing is trying to prevent abortions. And, but by loving on people well. And so all the donations go to helping moms and dads and babies. And so I first heard about the CPC through a woman named Sarah Moses. I can do this. Preached at her funeral. I can do this. So many of you had the honor of knowing her. She's now face-to-face with Jesus. She was a partner in our church. Um, that woman volunteered with the CPC for years. I believe decades, honestly. I, I don't know the exact, I know that as long as I knew her, she was there. And so she, I remember talking to her about it. And I remember being like, you know, all the babies that you've saved or, or been a part of like helping to spare their lives. And, and it's so great. She stopped me and she goes, <laughs> she goes, oh, I don't do it for the babies. The babies would be all right. They're going to see Jesus. I'd do it for the mamas. They need the love. And so whatever we give this week, so can we put our giving slide up on the, whatever we give this week, whatever we give through the text to give, text any amount to 84321, and all that's given between now and next Sunday via the text app there um, will be given in Sarah Moses' name to the CPC in memory of Sarah Moses. And so, uh, and, and yes, you can share that number with other people if you want to, um, but I can't think of a better Christmas gift to Jesus that would glorify him than to care for mothers of, and the unborn. Right? Yeah. And I'm, I'm closing here. Some of you might say, you know, wait, don't we as a church need that money? Yes. <laughs> yes, we do. Um, And we need to be wise in how we steward our money and income, which is just another reason to give generously here. Because I truly believe faith is the currency of the kingdom. And so, now if you consider Risen Church your home and you haven't done so yet, then I would encourage you to go online to risenchurchvb.com and set up a recurring payment. I would encourage you to do that. But I also want to say, and I want to highlight here, that giving to the CPC is just another way that we can honor the Lord with our wealth. Not only for with our first and best, but also with the rest as we lean into the joy of giving this Christmas. Let's pray.